When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Ian Foster, and you're listening to Tobin's Night. Ian, welcome to If and When. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) We're like, you know, we like to talk to people about uh, why and how they do things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you've i can tell already you've done your research yeah I, i've done what i what i like to tell people just don't have don't have too high hopes for me i like to tell people <laughs> i've done a little bit of research just so i have some comic relief and right. you know just treat it like a tinder date basically where you know a little bit about the person but you don't know everything because if you knew everything why would you even go on the date well i love mark maron's thing about that right where he's like i'll i'll look at people's wikipedia page maybe but i won't do too much research he's like if someone's won an academy award i feel like i should probably know that but anything beyond that you might know this doing the own your own podcast as well that it's like if you come in well over prepared because before we even get into like the music side of things here but i'll go on a little bit of a rant that when i first started off interviewing like jimmy rankin heather rankin and like they're big to me and I was just like, I should know everything about them. But at the same point as midway through the interview, you're like, yeah, I, I know this. You're telling me a story that I already did the research on. So now I'm bored. Totally. Where in other interviews, when you go in, like for someone like say a Bob Saget or a Mark Critch, uh, now not saying comparable or like one was better than the other, but like I let them tell me the story so that you're surprised. It's like, oh, okay. I knew you did this on Signal Hill, like went behind Justin Trudeau shirtless, but I don't know why. Like, tell me why. So now I'm a little bit more entertained than rather like read an article. But, like, he went behind Justin Trudeau because these kids were like, stop embarrassing us. So I'm like, okay, continue. Okay, good. All right. I've heard that before. No, you're 100% right. And I mean, I actually doing the if and when thing because I, I felt like even on the sort of Newfoundland scene level, I had read so many, so many stories about um that were just like the press release basically is what a lot of it is right it's just like which is which is exactly why it's like boring if someone's like all right i'm gonna basically reiterate my bio now or like those sort of just event stories which are super important but i mean event stories are like yeah all right you're doing a show cool you know and i mean it's important to get the word out but obviously it's not it's not a deeper dive. And some of the people I was speaking to, like I'd had so many chats with them personally that I'm like, this person is like so full of stories that I've never heard them tell on any like traditional media, you know? And that's what I love about podcasts. That's what I, you know, again, like Mark Maron, those kind of like long form conversations, those were, those were what like kept me company on long drives during a tour, you know? Cause it was just like sitting in on two people having a chat. It wasn't like about, the latest project they were promoting. Yeah, I think that's interesting because like I listen to, so I'm like a big wrestling fan. So I listen to say like 83 weeks with say Eric Bischoff. I've listened to a few, like I'm a big Conan fan as well. So I listened like, you know, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. And I'm like, Conan O'Brien has lots of friends. He doesn't need any more. I love those shows though, like serious jibber jabber. Like that's great too. Because they just go off and have like a, a conversation about like, you know, if he had Adam Sandler on, like in my mind, when you watch say Conan, the TV show, 
and he has Sadler on, you're like, okay, they're going to get into a little bit of SNL like they always do, but he's here to promote something. And if he's not, it's, it's, he's Adam Sandler or like, you know, he's Jim Carrey. He's there. You know who he is. You just are entertained. But then when you go to the podcast where there's not set, like there's not a set of how long it has to be, they give you a little bit more behind the stories of like, okay, the surface of Conan was, oh yeah, I got fired from SNL because blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, okay, cool. Next segment. We're on the podcast. It's like, you can spend like 40 minutes of figuring out like, oh, Sandler, why did you get fired from SNL? Here's the whole story. And you're like, okay. Well, again, it's just back to sitting around a table with people, you know, and it's like clearly a response to the fact that everything is so accelerated right now. Like everything is, you know, a tweet and like what what a horrible platform of something that's like completely decontextualizes everything as opposed to what you're talking about, where it's like, here's a 40 minute conversation about one topic. I mean, imagine just seeing like it'd be like a Twitter thread that'd be like one of one of 400 tweets uh, to try to tell that story. And, and most people would retweet like 286 of 400 <laughs> or something, you know, it's just like completely. Yeah. So I think people are yearning for that kind of like, you know, we all love a good conversation, whether we're having it or sitting in on it. You know? I feel like, especially now with COVID, cause I kind of want to get in a lot of branches and a little bit all over the place here as well. But like, I think with COVID people are just looking for things to either occupy them or like keep them distracted I kind of got into podcasting like besides my own of listening because of COVID where I was like, I want to do things like I want to clean the house. I want to uh, play either like NHL or like an MLB game, but I don't want my sole focus to just be listening to like James Sabalski and Ray Ferraro the whole time. It's like, I want to hear someone in the background. It's like almost like trying to multitask, but some will still be like, you're still lazy. You're not really doing much. I'm like, if, if you're listening to me, I am playing a game that I'm down five, nothing to come back in, but I'm also learning about uh, things that are happening on overdrive, like things like baseball. And they're like, all right, still lazy. I'm like, okay, I can't win with you. It's like, you're going to always think I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I just had a chat with a friend who's launching a podcast and he was like getting some, some tips and stuff. And, uh, and he was like, I don't know. I'm thinking about launching it in the summer, which is probably like being in a band, like a summer is a bad time to tour unless you're doing like a festival or something. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's true because everything you just said is the same. Like if I'm washing the dishes or something, I'm putting on a podcast and essentially it's curated radio, you know? So like, I don't know that there's not a time for curated radio. Like I I get his point that he's like people inside, maybe they're kind of bored looking for something else to do. But to me, it's like, I don't know, it's a sunny day. You're going to go for a walk. Maybe you'll put in the earbuds and listen to a podcast. Like it's, it can work the same as radio. It's just, you know, in my opinion, better. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to me because I come from the radio background because I went, so I went to Carlton for communications and then did rod, or radio broadcast Algonquin. So, like, I am always in that, I, I guess it's like the old fashioned mindset of I used to think doing podcasting, it's like I have to go live at 9 30 or I have to have this up at 9 30, where I look at other people that will be like, I'm just going to post whenever. And if you want to listen to it, cool. I'm like, that's, it's laxy daisy. And there's a part of me that's like, no, you need to like get this going. So people know like nine 30 every day, you're going to post this or nine 30 on a Wednesday, but there's still another audience out there. Like I'm subscribed. Like you let me know when you're posting something and I'll find time to listen to it because I've already subscribed. I'm like, good. <laughs> yeah. I try to look at everything as that golden rule thing, you know, the whole do on to others uh, thing. And if that, that so applies in your own just career endeavors too. And like, for me, like I, you know, I mean, I've literally never 
counted down to listening to a podcast live. You know, like I've I love podcasts to death. I subscribe to so many, but I never um, like I've I'd never listen to it live. It's always after the fact. So to me, like I get what you're saying, and you're totally right. Like I had the same thing of like this, you know, set set each episode to launch at this particular time. Yeah. But I was also like, I assume most people will hear it like days later or weeks later, maybe months later, you know. To get into it a little bit about, of course, we're going to cock ECMAs, your music career, like a a lot of other things as well. But I I want to kind of stick with the podcasting a little bit first, because I want to ask you from one podcaster to another of what made you essentially do your podcast or, you know, if and when, why and how did you start it? Well, it began with me just listening to them for years and being on the road and realizing that, you know, in Canada, everything is an eight-hour drive. Essentially, it doesn't really matter. It just seems like every day is eight hours worth of traffic. Sometimes it's like three or four and you're thankful, but most times it's like eight. And uh, as fun as that might sound to be able to create a little playlist and jam out in the car, I mean, when you do it all the time and and you're you're playing music that night and then packing up and then driving and to play music the next night, you may not want to listen to eight hours of music <laughs> in between. So, um, so I got into podcasts for that. And I, I found that um, particularly with the long form conversation stuff, the hours just melted away, you know, because if it was a good chat, you just got absorbed in it just like you would in person. So I spent, you know, I don't know how many hundreds, if not thousands of hours over a couple of years, like listening to various podcasts and sort of, having some of those philosophical thoughts like, wow, like someone like Marin, you know, like I've listened to thousands of hours, like a thousand hours of this guy talking. That's nuts. Like how, what other medium, like what other entertainer, you know, favorite bands, whatever. But just like the idea that I'd, I'd had that time sitting alone in my car with the stereo on, like listening to him talk to people. And I thought that was kind of cool. And it's certainly like the guests, you know, they run the gamut. You sort of laugh, you cry, like it's great stories, great insight. Uh, I was really taken with it. And so for for me, that plus, I guess, what we were just chatting about, like the whole sort of decontextualize Twitter, you know, disconnect that social media, ironically, like sort of anti-social media can, can, can cause. It just seemed like something that I really wanted to do. I mean, again, golden rule. I enjoyed it so much personally that it was, it was kind of more for me. You know, I had these, these friends and people I met in the music industry and the art scene in general that I'm like, I know this person is a great chat because I've, I've already had it. I've, I've had coffee with them. I've chatted with them on the road or whatever. And I'm like, just put up the microphones. You know, that was a common thing too. Like, you, you ever have those chats in person with someone you're like, oh, I wish we were recording this. You know, how many people say that when you just have a really good conversation with people? So I'm like, I want to take that and just literally do it. Let's put up the microphones. No pressure. It's not around any kind of promo. Like I'm obviously not anti promo cycle. If someone is promoting something, then great. Like, you know, have them on. But for me, it was all just like personal choices of people that I'm like, this will be an interesting chat and it'll be recorded. And, and that'll be that. So that was sort of the idea behind it. I'm kind of like a little bit of both. Like I, I have conversations with people where I'm like, yeah, this, like, why aren't we recording this? And then it's kind of like a double-edged sword for me at some points, because sometimes you'll have these conversations with people like a roommate and it's a great conversation. But the moment you put the mic down in front of them, like I'm very comfortable around a mic. I've like, I like public speaking, but then they, it's almost like someone like walked into the room naked and just looked at them and they're like, look at me and they're like, um, 
so yeah, this this thing that we were talking about, I'm like, why are you what's what's going on? Like, what's going on with your words? It's only a microphone. What's going on here? Like, what happened? That's a great point. And and so for me, like that's why I called it like conversations with creators as opposed to interviews. And I kind of like really uh, not prickle at the idea of being like, oh, your interview with someone. I'm like, that was a horrible interview in terms of what the word interview means, because I'm like, I definitely went, you know, tens of minutes without ever asking a question. We were literally just having a conversation, you know, but I think that that helps. Like I would talk away to someone and they're, they're kind of disarmed, you know, they don't feel they don't feel like they're on the spot. It's not why did you, who did you, where did you? It's not the usual questions that someone feels, okay, did I answer that correctly? Like that was exactly what I wanted to get away from for if and when. But I want to get into a little bit now, uh, Ian, about the the music side of things. Like, of course, they have like the ECMAs. Uh, they're still going ahead. Uh, I mean, you know, with everything else, that, with everything else being canceled. I was just amazed because like everyone's just trying their best to make sure things go ahead. But there has to be a lot of like confusion, miscommunication sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're part of the export showcase, and we were offered a uh, the folk pop stage as well this year. And um, we, I had conversations with the ECMA folks back at the beginning of the month. Uh, this is April, um, and you know it's an evolving situation. You know, and and for us, we sort of realized early on that we just wouldn't be able to go for a variety of reasons. So I discussed that with them. And so we knew then that we would do a virtual version of the export thing. And just for clarity, what export means is basically like it's, you know, aside from the, the fans and the musicians that go to these things, there's also various delegates that come in that are everything from like sync license people for movies to like venue owners and festival uh, artistic directors and stuff like that. And so the export program is geared for artists who are like uh, having direct conversations with those people. So that's, that's the conference side of the thing. That's kind of boring to the average person, but it's basically like, you know, you, you, you play literally two songs. It's, it's called two for the show and, uh, and you play two songs and then you end up having basically speed dating meetings with those people and, uh, and chatting with them after it's uh, completely bizarre. It's probably as bizarre as it sounds, but uh, that's sort of how, you know, some business gets done at this stuff. So, uh, so we knew pretty early on that we would be doing a virtual version of that because I think they had always intended even for attendees of the conference who were part of that particular stage, they were kind of keeping things virtual because a lot of delegates can't go this year, right? Like I think there was there was a small number of the hundred and something delegates they had that could even attend because they anyone outside the Atlantic bubble obviously wouldn't be able to go. So so they'd always kind of had that contingency for that showcase, and then we had to turn down the other one, and then um, because we wouldn't be there in person and they were like filming them live. Everything has gone virtual. My understanding now is they're like cutting back the showcases. So like we're still doing our export thing, <laughs> but but still not doing the other stage. Uh, you know, frankly, it's all it's all super confusing, but that's it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there, there were so many updates because of what everybody's already read in the news, you know, the bubble was pushed and then it was pushed again and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I know, I know well how much work goes into this stuff, like the number of people who are employed to execute contracts for different, like hotels and venues in, in the, in the host city and all that stuff. I can't even fathom like the amount of uh, work that is rendered 
irrelevant and then new work needs to be done. I mean, I can fathom it only because I've had a tour that's now on its third third cancellation and I know how it feels to like have done work and then undone work and then redone work and then undone work. So that is unfortunately so many people's year this year has been that, you know, and EC Mays is no different. So I want to talk a little bit, of course, because I thought it was interesting to do a little bit of research here that you have co-written with Ron Hines. Ron Hines is big in Newfoundland, uh, even when we had uh, Kathy Jones on and she was talking about creating the Sarah's 22 Minutes. Uh, she had originally said that she wanted Ron Hines in that. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting that it could have been a different path that we looked at Ron Hines and instead of just music. It could have been like a comedy mindset as too. But um, tell me a little bit about that. Like, have you ever bounced ideas off him or like when you were ever chatting with him and like, what was that dynamic like? Yeah. So I think that that co-write came from a music NL conference back in uh, 2006, 2007, something like that. And they had, they had done this masterclass or something with, with songwriters. And uh, I think it was Ron and Davina Doyle were the, like the, the, the group leaders. And uh, there was just a two day event. And the third day was performing the songs that you had just written on like a CBC songwriter circle thing. So it was a cool opportunity. And that was like the year my first record came out. So I was like, I was pretty green and super stoked about it all. And on the second day, I ended up writing this song with Ron. And I remember um, Ron basically being like, go out in the staircase and come up with something like any little piece. And, you know, and then we'll sit down and we'll work, we'll workshop it. And it was like, we were pressed for time as all these things go. And I was like super keen to impress him. So I, I really tried to get this thing together, like most of it together. Um, like I had a couple of verses and a chorus and all that stuff. And so um, came back in and like the thing I remember most from that particular session was that Ron is a really great editor. And that's something that I, I have said this before, uh, but I, you know, bears repeating just because I don't think, people think about songwriting necessarily that specifically they're like, Oh, he's a good songwriter or she's a good songwriter, but like why? And, and like, I would, I would play him something and he'd be like, show me the lyric sheet. And he'd be like, why did you put and there or then like, it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a, there's no need for that word. And all it does is clutter up the melody, you know? So like, take that word out. You can hold another note longer. It just makes the melody more concise. And so, like the stuff he did with that song, you know, it just made it better. And then I asked him if he'd sing on the record and he was up for that. And I remember it was hilarious because he said, like, get in touch. He said, call the Rose and Thistle and leave a message for me and like, I'll get back to you. And I was like, he's definitely blowing me off or like joking around with me. Like, he's like, yeah, just just imagine, you know, it's like a girl giving you like a fake phone number. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. It's just like what? What, and I would call the Rose. I was like, hey, can I? I was like, is Rahm there? You know, just calling a bar in the middle of the day. And they're like, he's not here. And, and I'm like, can I leave a message? And they're like, yeah, go ahead. And I'm like, really? Wow. Okay. It was, just, <laughs> it was expected at the Rose that, and sure enough, he did call me back from the Rose then later. You know, I'm like, that's amazing. He's like, I don't have a phone. So that's at that point in time. Uh, yeah. So we went in the studio. He sang on, sang on it's on uh, Room in the City, which is my first uh, solo record um it's the last song on that and then that was probably 2007 or so and so for almost the next 10 years uh you know ron would show up at random gigs and we'd have a little chat and he would give some you know he would give some encouraging remarks 
I remember one night I played at the Rose and he was there and it was like sort of a, you know, kind of a din in the room. It was a bit of a louder room. And so after the show, he's like, Ian, that Red Sky song, love that ballad. Listen, let me give you a piece of advice. It's like when you sort of have a room that's like half loud, half quiet, never be afraid to say to the microphone, excuse me, but there are people who paid to see me play tonight. And I sort of like nodded. I was like, yeah, okay, Ron. And he goes, he pauses, and then he sort of smirks. And, like, and if, tell him if, if that doesn't work, tell him to shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down. <laughs> And I was like, I mean, you can get away with that. I don't know why I can. It, it, it's almost like I, I like how, again, I'm sure it's like wholesome or it's just advice. But I love how like when you're at that place, you can say that. It's like almost as if if I was doing a stand up or, you know, a podcast and uh, say a Bill Burr walks in a room or a Dave Chappelle. They're like, just tell them all to shut up. Tell them that they came to see you. I'm like, well, actually, technically, they didn't. They came to uh, enjoy five comedians and they just wanted the night out on Friday. They're like, yeah, but you are that person that they came out to see. I'm like, again, no. <laughs> yeah. And that you're totally right. That is the risk of that in any situation, obviously in the one you're describing, but it's sort of like, that's why it's risky. Cause it does sometimes work and you don't, it don't, don't necessarily have to say it as explicitly as that, but there are ways to do it. Like I saw Ron once at, at an ECMA in Sydney where it was like the closing end of the night. And it was like, you know, it was a good year for Ron. Everyone was really into it. And I think he, I think it was Sonny's dream. He was playing that and he like was about to sing the chorus and the whole bar without prompting just sang the chorus. And this is like, you know, you're, inter-province group of people just yeah. launching into Sonny's dream because it's Sonny's dream. And Ron stepped back from the mic. And I, I remember just watching him and being like, what a feeling that must be, you know, yeah. obviously to be at a point in your career where like with, you know, you just, you just do the song and you don't need to say everybody now, even like people just didn't. And it, like, I could see him, and I, at first I was like, I wondered, because I know at that point in my career, I was like, I'd be super emotional if that ever happened at all. And I could see Ron sort of step back and think for a second. Everyone like kind of finished singing the chorus and then cheered as a group. Like, what a moment that they like the group cheered themselves because they were like, wasn't that <laughs> fucking cool that we just yeah. sang? The ego you know? trip. And yeah. Ron, Ron sort of like held the chord at the end. I was like, man, he must be emotional. And he sort of got, the, again, this little smirk that he would get sometimes. And he just leaned back to the mic and he went, that was brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just like totally burned everybody. And everybody laughed and they enjoyed it more, right? And I'm like, there you go. That's how you do it. Tell me a little bit about kind of how you ended up getting into music. Like, did you pick up a guitar for the first time and think, okay, this is what I want to do? Did someone like, like, tell me all about that story. Cause I know some people get up and they might do an open mic night and someone's like, oh, that's really good. And like, you go on and it's like, oh, maybe I can do this. So like, what kind of entrenched you, I guess, to get into the music side of things? Yeah. So for me, I used to go into Radio Shack and play the pianos till they told me to stop. And uh, my parents took that as a sign and were like, let's get a keyboard for Christmas. And, you know, the rest is history to a point on that. You know, basically I, you know, had, I, I remember it came with a little book that like had the pictures of the notes and the note name in them. And then the, the, like the stickers that you stuck on the keys. Like, so I used the little diagram, stuck all the stickers on the keys 
and played like yesterday by the Beatles or, you know, like there was a little book of songs that just had the, like the single note melodies kind of thing. And I was like, Hey, I figured this out. My parents would like, I didn't even know the songs. Right. I'd be like, does this sound like anything? They're like, Hey, that actually sounds like that song, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that was like day one. I think I was like 10 years old. And so my parents were like, let's put them in lessons. So for 10 years I did piano lessons and uh and so that's my first instrument and and i did like the Kiwanis route and i would start to write stuff you know just with it was all instrumental piano because that was the tools i had you know and that's how that's how creativity works you know i've taught some music lessons over the years as well and it's hilarious like if i teach a kid like smoke on the water which is like uh what four or five notes the opening riff the bam 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 and then like next week maybe two out of ten will come back you know, two out of 10 kids who learn that will come back and be like, I also wrote a song and it will be the same notes of smoke on the water, just reordered. And I'm like, that makes total, there's creativity right there. It's like, you worked with that number of notes and then I'll teach them another song. And like another percentage of that kids will come back and be like, I wrote another song and it'll be an amalgam of those two songs. It'll be terrible. They're not even the same key. It doesn't even make any sense. But like, they're like, well, that's all, that's the whole, that's all I know language, you know? (laughs) And then, so like over time, your language grows and hopefully like you just consume enough stuff that eventually it's such a mishmash that you would call it. That's my style, you know, that will be different than everybody else's. So for me, it was like instrumental piano first, did a bunch of that, got to high school, did guitar. Like, I think that's not the case anymore that they don't have it. But like Bishop's College, which was the high school I went to, had like not one, but two full year courses in guitar that you could do for for credit. And it's like that should still be the case if schools aren't doing that, because it was I mean, that's how I got into guitar. And it was it was both through the instruction, but also just from like squirreling away, you know, we'd get the classical kind of, you know, this is where the notes are and you're going to learn to read proper music, not tab and now go away and practice. And we'd squirrel away in a corner and someone would be like, I learned this Nirvana riff, you know, check it out. It's just I looked it up on tab, you know, and so I learned a lot over a couple of years that way. You know, now I was writing guitar songs and guitar is really, you know, piano is a very melodic instrument. You know, play the melody in the right hand, bass in the left hand. Guitar is more of that sort of chordal strumming instrument, not necessarily playing the melody until you're really good and can do like finger pick stuff. So, you know, it's sort of made way for being like, I'm going to write some lyrics to this and like sing over these chords. And then, you know, suddenly I'm writing songs that way. And by this point, I guess I'm like... You know, I don't know. I'm going to university, so like 18 or 19 or so, and keep doing that throughout my degree, you know, which was an English degree. Was going to go into journalism, you know, did the whole like, was the arts editor at the Muse and uh, did some like writing for canoe.ca, which was a thing back then, uh, Canadian journalism website, like went to some live shows at the stadium here, wrote for the Telegram a little bit. And was just getting to the point where I'm like, guess I'm going to go to journalism school. But it was that sort of moment everyone has when they graduate. of like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, and uh, I just realized I was, you know, everything I did, even though I had an English degree, I was going to go into journalism. Like when I was the arts editor, uh, anything that would come in that wasn't music, I would give that story to somebody. But if there was like interview this band, I'd be like, I'm going to take this, one, you know, or like an English degree, which was like American literature, 19. 19- 25 to 50 or something and i'd be like they were like you can do a term paper on anything like you have to read these books and write these essays but the term paper is anything and i'd be like i'm gonna do the jazz age you know like everything i could just veered back to music somehow and so i'm like i'm gonna 
I'm going to make a go at this. So, you know, I did what every good English major who just spent a fortune on his education did at that point. I went and worked at chapters and uh, and then played gigs at night, you know, and just kind of started building from there. Now, you were talking, of course, on the music side and you would want to do music articles and stuff. But like what made you, I guess, interested in going into a radio shack and playing a piano? Like who are some people that you idolized or grew up and said, you know what, they're doing that. Maybe I can too. Yeah. I mean, at that young age with the Radio Shack thing, I think it was just like true childlike fascination that you can't really get to the bottom of, you know, because I don't really remember like what as a 10 year old, I was like hip to probably nothing, you know, in terms of like actual, like this is my favorite band, you know, it always feels like that stuff kind of happens at like puberty, like 12, 13, where you're like, I like this band now. I don't know why, but they just seem cool. So I'm into that. It was Backstreet Boys for me. Right, right. Boys for me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the coolest for me was probably like the Metallica Guns N' Roses phase that like a lot of, you know, teenage boys go through. But like, you know, I've got to be honest, like Bon Jovi, Brian Adams also held a strong hold for whatever reason. But, um, but yeah, like the, the first bit of like, this is cool. This makes a cool sound. I mean, my parents tell stories of like me being a baby banging on the pots and pans more than the average baby, like the sort of drum type thing when I was super young, have no recollection of any of that of course but uh, the piano was just something that i'm like these sounds are cool and as i've gotten older i've sort of been like i think that's a really cool thing to hold on to because i still feel that way um even lately like i've been playing less guitar and i've been back to not just piano but like synths and weird sort of keyboard based midi sample instruments and stuff and uh i think you know, who wants to let that go? You know, like I know that there's, there's, you know, you, you learn craft and you learn technique and stuff, but like, it should still always come back to like, that sounds cool. That's intriguing. Like, that's obviously like, you know, I guess it's an example of like, you, you knew more when you were younger than you do when you were older in some ways. You just didn't know you knew it, you know? No, like, listen, I like the story because actually it was, I was going to rib you a little bit. Cause when you mentioned radio shack, but I was like, no, I'll let him continue. But I was like, gee, it's like, people are going to be like, what's radio shack? Does he mean the source? Does, what, right. what's, he, what's he talking <laughs> about? But I remember at Christmas time watching radio shack commercials and thinking it's like a big deal. But one of my favorite things, I, I think my parents got me from a radio shack and it kind of ties into your uh, piano story a little bit is there was a thing that you could get, like it was like an on-air broadcasting kit, or, or kit, and all it did was you somehow turned on a random dial on your radio, and you set it up that it would be like a, a static station, and you could talk into it, and it would allow you to play CDs on it, right? So that you're the only one that's going to listen to the CD, but you would hear yourself on the dial, and I used to think everyone could hear you on the dial, but it's only you in your room that set it right. up to your speaker. So I would be like doing like Casey Kasem's like top 10 this week it's like goo goo dolls iris and then i'd be like oh my god mom did you hear me and like i it's funny because again i feel like as a parent i'm not a parent but i i can kind of relate to it as you just want the kid to be quiet for like an hour or a half hour like give you silence right and i would go downstairs and be like mom did you turn on like 94 7 i'm on 94 7 right now and she's that's like adorable. that's nice yeah, she's like that's nice hold on i'll turn it on and then you go back upstairs and like in real time, now as a radio broadcaster, I'm like that you don't do that. That's dead static air. Like who's who's manning the station? But I'd go back upstairs and I'd pract- like go over things for like an hour, and then you think she's listening to it downstairs, where in her evil mind she's like, he's upstairs. He thinks I'm listening to him when all I'm really doing is enjoying my silence. And I'm like, I, when I got older, I'd be like, oh, you're an asshole. Why would you do that to Aww. me? But then like when I get really old, I'm like. Yeah, I'd probably do the same thing. Like, I have a niece and nephew that they'll play, like, hide and seek or something. And 
they're like, okay, we're going to hide. And I'm like, okay, I'll come find you. And then like 20 minutes, I'm like, I will look for them now. <laughs> I will, uh, uh, and they're like, you didn't. I don't think that's evil at all. I feel like I feel like it's totally. Uh, I, I it triggers a memory of watching Back to the Future Part Two in theaters, and like Part Three, like they had a trailer for Part Three. I guess they shot them back to back. Yeah. So like a trailer for Part Three played, and I remember looking at my dad and being like, "Are we gonna get to see this now?" Like I couldn't couldn't fathom the idea that like a movie would be to be continued in the movie theater. That's not something that happened that happened on TV, you know, not in the movies. And my dad was like, I don't think so. And I've joked to him recently. I was like, that's how I knew you were a good dad. You weren't like, you know, you fucking idiot. Of course we're not going to see this now. Like he was just so like, they're there, son. You know, it's like, that's what a parent does. Yeah. It's like, that's what your mom was doing. She was like, I'll listen to that. You know, she didn't want to hurt your, didn't want to ruin your dreams. That's all. Yeah. Well, it's different. I laugh at it. Cause it's, there's your difference between a mom and a dad like i went to see i i I, it's it's not like a bone chilling moment of like it ruined it for me forever because i wasn't really overly overly into harry potter but i remember going seeing the first movie to give it a try and so it was me and my dad and at this time you could bring in like snacks to the movie theater you can bring in like a newspaper i don't know how a newspaper would hurt anybody that you can't do it today but he would bring it in and i think when it was like midway through the movie maybe even five minutes in i looked over to him thinking like this is an epic scene and you're young. I think it was like 10 or 12. And um, he was passed out with the newspaper over him. And I was like, you have ruined this for me. Like, I am <laughs> never like you, if you fell asleep to this, how can I convince anyone else that this is a good movie? So every time right. like a Harry Potter movie comes on, I'm like, I kind of want to watch it. But at the same point, it's like they're long. They're like tedious. I'm like, never mind. But I, I laugh at it now because, you know, we'll watch hockey and he'll be passed out by like the second or third period. And I'll look over to him when he wakes up with like the, the head nod of shame of like, like I understand <laughs> it's Toronto and Winnipeg and you know, they're supposed to be good teams, but the game could be boring, but it's like, I I'm losing interest in hockey. And he just looked at me like, that's your interest, not my interest. It's like, I can fall asleep whenever I want. And I'm like, fair enough. Like, I, I love how there's dynamics of like the over, uh, like the more involved parent and then sometimes the less one, because if it's almost like, I think any kid would tell you or anybody telling you growing up, there's always the one parent that you want at certain events, but not at other events. Like to me, my mom is very supportive, but if I had to have her like public speaking events or swimming, she would be the one up in the bleachers doing a backstroke, showing you how to swim. Or when you're doing like public speaking, be the one that's like mouthing the words, even though she denies, she does it where you're, my dad would be like, he's not drowning. Is he? Okay. I got to pick him up. I got to pick him up at five at this event. Okay. Like, I'm sure he, he cares enough, but at the same point, he's like, I'm a, it's like, I got my own life too. I'm glad, I'm glad he has a life, but I have to have a life too. (laughs) (laughs) It must be exhausting to raise kids. That's the thing. I think this comes back to you. It's just like the amount of energy that we've acquired when we're children. I just look at my parents now and I'm like, how did you do it? How did you, uh, (laughs) they're like, we we didn't. Yeah, how did you manage to get through me, you know, growing up, basically? But uh, I'm grateful anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, like, to kind of close off the interview, I hope like I hope you enjoyed it as well as I did. But I, I want to kind of clue it up with uh, maybe a little bit of things that you've been keeping yourself busy during COVID. Like, we've asked – we've only had two acts on so far. We've got more coming in the next few days, maybe the next week. But an interesting aspect that I think is cool is – maybe not cool isn't the great word here but covid we've been doing now for a year and people when they first started off like when we talked to rachel and uh, rachel cousins and rosemary lawton they were talking about like 
man, how do we keep active? Like, how do we keep our fan base going? Like, what do we do? Like, you know, if we're not into the Instagram or YouTube or they, they're like, we don't want to do Q and A's all the time. Like that's tedious. And maybe they're, it's just like their mental mind state, which I totally understand. But now they're saying after a year later, they've learned how to like edit, produce. Uh, I think Rosemary had even mentioned about like, she has a new project coming out with Canvas as a new album during COVID. So I'm like, the beginning of COVID to them was almost like, oh my God, like this is the end. And then over the time of a year, it's like, okay, we got to do something. So like, do you have a similar kind of story when it comes to COVID of when it first started, you were like, kind of defeated but now you're kind of like well this is what i did over covid yeah i mean you know the music industry is tough anyway so the idea of just like not being able to play anywhere ever is <laughs> you know uh yeah. and definitely like a decent portion of my annual income was made you know from touring so it was it was a major adjustment and i had a tour that was supposed to start on something like march 24th 2020 so it was like i was definitely one of the first people that you know i was in that first row of fellow musicians who you know were like i and the tour was was out west and it was something like 20 dates you know over some period of time and i was i was also taking like a week in there to produce a track out there because i do some music production stuff as well and there's an artist who lives in calgary that i was producing a couple of songs for it was something that between all those things i mean something that a lot of people don't think about of course is like when that stuff is booked you know a tour is not booked in a day or a week a tour is you know especially on the more indie musician level is booked over like months maybe years i mean like the first dates that i had that were anchor dates out west i think were booked like a year and a half in advance that's something like the ecmas you know someone who was like we'd love to have you you know the season you know some of these places that are you know the more anchor dates for musicians they only do a dozen shows a year you know so they're literally like okay we we, we start booking in like june for the following year like september to say april or may and then by the time june is over that next year is booked and then you know then we'll talk for the following year a little while after you know so with cycles of that sort of thing, it, it, you know, this tour that had this production job and these other gigs and all this stuff that had probably been booked, you know, piecemeal over a year while I was doing other stuff suddenly was like, this is just gone now. Yeah. And that's, that's the tour that's been thrice rebooked right now for winter 2022. We'll see how that goes. So, I mean, the, the, right off the bat, I was like, okay, I've never canceled a show in my life unless I was horribly ill. And uh, now a whole tour has been canceled. We're all just staying home. And that's super strange and uh, get used to it, I guess. Um, so the first little while definitely felt weird. I mean, one of the things I remember that was kind of bizarre was there was this very strange contingent of people. Maybe you noticed this too, who were like, it's kind of nice to be off work for a couple of weeks. Like when it very first happened, like people who were used to going to work. And during that time I was busy trying to like cancel a tour and refund airline tickets yeah. and stuff. So I never had that <laughs> little period of like, Oh, it's kind of nice to be home. It was like, oh my God, I was about to not be home. And now I'm kind of dealing with that. Um, and then once that dust settled, uh, truthfully, it was a little back, just to link it back, perfect segue, to that Radio Shack thing. You know, I was working on 
uh, and have been working on a record for a considerable amount of time right now with a co-producer friend of mine in Ontario. And uh, we've had to now switch to completely remote, but we were already kind of doing remote work. We had planned for him to come home in June last year, which he uh, couldn't do, obviously. But we were already doing a bunch of remote work on that. So then it became completely remote. Uh, And then that project sort of became almost like meditative, you know, in that same that same vein of like playing those Radio Shack keyboards and being like, that's a cool sound, you know? And and what I mean, I guess, to kind of phrase it hopefully better is that, you know, I'd wake up, I'd be like, okay, tour has been canceled. It's now like, say, April and like it's pretty grim. You know, we all still don't really know what's happening. You're reading the news. It's like, okay, death tolls are climbing. Uh, we don't know anything about the virus. You know, music is over. Uh, what does that mean? And so, and I would kind of at some point then in the morning be like, I guess I'll go down and play a synth part. Like it was just so, when you think about it, absurd, but it was also like, this is how I get through this, I guess. And it was sort of a funny test of, of like, how much do you love music? You know, I've been, I've been a professional musician for like 17 or 18 years now. And it's like, well, I guess I must really love music because once all the other pieces are over (laughs) that I've been doing for the last 17 or 18 years, I still want to go downstairs to the studio and like try out some parts and see how it sounds and get lost in the, in, you know, a section. And there was obviously no, no visible financial gain to do that. No visible, like, you know, I'm going to be able to go play this for people anytime soon. It was just purely for just wanting to do it. So, so that, that has been, you know, sort of a lifesaver and something I've continued to work on, you know, the records getting close to being done. So that's been like an ongoing project throughout COVID. And then I've kind of leaned on some of the film stuff I've done. So I've done some editing work for some other artists and a couple of remote productions. So like an artist named Graham Lindsay, who lives in Ottawa he wrote a song that a bunch of like Winnipeg artists played on and I'm here in Newfoundland producing it. And it was like mixed in Montreal. So it was like truly like kind of crazy, like Canadian project if ever there was one. Um, but that was something else I did. So it's been a, you know, without going into a total laundry list of things, you know, it's been, it's still managed to be fulfilling artistically and uh, sort of make ends meet, you know, throughout the pandemic. Yeah, I like how you you used like the laundry example there because when you're just mentioning about you know like being pretty like this in part being Montreal and Winnipeg, I'm like man, they're mixing like their their colors and their delicates all together there. It's <laughs> it's like they're they're mixing everything together. It's <laughs> a good way to look at it. Yeah, I, I think you're right on the head there because I want to kind of tie it all together. Of when you were saying during COVID, you're talking about like okay, this is really testing. Do I like music? Do I want to still go downstairs and play these instruments? Like it's you're really doing it. I feel like if if you're truly into it, you're doing it kind of for yourself and for your own enjoyment. Like I laugh at it from the podcast standpoint, and maybe you've seen it yourself, but uh, in both music and in podcasting where you'll come across people that are like, oh man, I've been doing this for like three or four months and I haven't got a gig, or I've been doing this for three or four months. I haven't got paid or people don't listen to me. And like in my mind, I'm like, okay, I get it that you're concerned, but it sounds to me like you're doing it for the wrong reason. Like uh, one of my favorite quotes i think it was um uh well if i start doing stand-up like how long will it take before i sell out millions of shows it's like okay well if that's what you're doing stand-up for you're not doing it for the right purpose like you're doing it kind of like as a as a way to make money not for yourself so when i look at podcasting for me when someone comes up to me it's like how many listeners do you have or followers and like just say it's not over the moon and then they're like are you depressed about that or is that like does that make you sad i'm like no because 
I'm doing it for me. Like essentially this podcast was because I was applying for like CBC and global jobs. And when I was doing internships, they wouldn't let me hold a microphone or do interviews. I'm like, I I can see down the road. Like if I want to be a reporter and you're not letting me be a reporter right now, it's not going to happen for me. So I'm like, I'm going to do this on my own. It's, it's the right attitude to take without a doubt. I mean, I've had this conversation with a lot of different artists, uh, like from the producer role of things, you know, and having yeah. chats, you know, um, like I noticed you were talking to Rosie and like, I, I produced her first record and we had this chat, like when, you know, when, when she was figuring out exactly how to approach it, you know? Um, and and it, it really is, it has to be, it has to be for you. And it has to be like the best you can do in that moment uh, because everything else will be a gamble. You know, like you're saying, obviously you can say, well, I want to get millions of viewers and tons of money or whatever, but realistically, like that usually doesn't happen. So if your if your product is just geared for that, you know, if, if it doesn't happen for you, like in the way that you're expecting, which it pretty much, it'll never happen for anyone in the way that they're expecting. You know, that's, I don't think anyone has ever said it happened exactly the way they expected about their lives. Yeah. Then you're kind of left with nothing, you know, whereas, uh, you know, if you do it for you and you do it the way you want to do it, um, maybe it doesn't exceed, succeed quite the way you want it to, but at least you're left with the thing you, you did it the way you wanted to do it. You know, the whole Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, you know? And, uh, maybe that won't work out, but at least you have something that you're, you know, hopefully proud of for yourself. If even if everybody else doesn't love it. Well, like I like to to wrap it all up here to show you how good I am at ad living. Like I am very proud of this interview. We did it our way. And if, (laughs) and when this ever happens again, we would love to have you on. (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin tonight. Our thanks to Ian Foster for coming on to the show. Remember, you can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying thank you for listening and good night. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.
Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.